You are listening to History Man 1781, a project of ekbarns.com. On today's podcast, we are featuring Philip Wingard and the early stoneware of America. Philip is the owner of Philip Wingard Southern Decorative Arts in Clover, South Carolina, and has written an article called From Baltimore to the South Carolina Backcountry, Thomas Chandler's Influence on 19th Century Stoneware. It's featured in the 2013 edition of Ceramics in America. Welcome, Philip. Thank you. So, Philip, what is uh, what is it about stoneware that really just ignites a passion in you and in, in your, your love of history? Well, you know, interestingly enough, I've found that stoneware seems to have a, a, a connection with everyone that goes way back. It's something that's really not, I can't really explain it. And some of us, because of uh, modern day technologies, we don't maybe get hit with it until you're in your 30s like it was for me. But once it it dawns on you, then you suddenly realize that this part of our past is significant and it still has a hold on us. In other words, these pots uh, that our ancestors used, uh, they were were thought highly of and they were kept and they were revered and they were handed down, they were heirlooms. And for many, many thousands of years, human races depended on some sort of pottery to uh, help help make life a little easier. So, um, in particular, when I got when I got the lightning bolt that hit me one day, and I suddenly realized this is something I wanted to learn about. It was about 1982 when I was uh, had been doing some genealogy, and I was visiting a museum down in South Carolina, and uh, at, the, at the Lexington Museum, uh, County Museum, and they were there um, basically. They had a lot of uh, items there that had been donated by Wingard family members. And in this collection, there were pieces of stoneware that were also had been donated by the family. By your family? By the Wingard family, yes, in Lexington County. So, And you were telling me your, your family actually came uh, into the German settlements down in that, uh, that uh, Saluda Shoals area, that Saxagatha, that area? That's down right. There? The Wingard family dates from arrival on the ship Elizabeth in February of, of se- or January, late January, 1753. Um, here again, the, the the journey was a very difficult one, but as soon as they landed, they uh, their passage they had paid for, they had their own money, they were not indentured, they were uh, f- free to claim their uh, their uh, 350 acres, 50 acres per, per person in the household was at the time what the king of England offered. And uh, so they they went up into the back country, and the, the the lot or the the plot that they had there, the um, uh, this particular 350 acres. When you look at the plat, it says vacant land on all sides. There were no neighbors, and they were a stone's throw away from uh, Salute Old Town, which was where the Cherokees had a very established old town that went back centuries. So. This was the King of England you know, trying to push settlers further into the backcountry. And in this particular case, uh, my family was affected by uh, the, the uh, French and Indian War. My immigrant ancestor, John Adam Wingard, was, uh, was, was dead by 1756. And, and the family history is that he was killed by Indians. So the family was forced to move over to the 
fort at Drear, the Drear's fort over at the Saluda, at the Saluda Shoals, which is where Lake Murray, Lake Murray Dam is today. And uh, they eventually traded the 350 acres for 250 acres along the river there with a man from Charleston by the name of Vincent Simmons. Now, Vincent was just a land speculator, and he, you know, he, he did this sort of thing a lot. And uh, so, so that's where we came from. And when I start looking at my genealogy and tracing my roots back, I, I discovered that the, uh, that there was something in this region that had, was going on that a lot of us knew nothing about, and that was this uh, tremendous stoneware industry that started about the year 1812. And um, it didn't, uh, you know, it, it wasn't something where a stoneware company came down and opened a stoneware factory. It was where a man by the name of Abner Landrum saw the need and saw the possibilities. And so uh, because of uh, something that also happened in, in the year 1812, the War of 1812, we were again at war, declared war with England because England did not respect us as a nation, didn't respect our borders, didn't respect our our men on the seas, they didn't respect anything about us as a nation. And so we had to reestablish with them that we were still willing to fight for our independence. And basically that's what we did in the War of 1812. But the mighty British had a, a had a an armada of ships, so they immediately figured they would just blockade us into submission. And so they set up this huge blockade from Savannah all the way to New York City. And this stopped the flow of any kind of imports, imports from France or from England or from anywhere. And by not having uh, these cheaply made, wonderful things that came from England, it, it forced us to, for the first time, realize if we were going to be a nation to stand on our own two feet, we were gonna have to establish our own manufacturing base. I see, I see. Where did your journey take you from there? Well, um, because this, this, the director, Horace Harmon of the museum, told me that these pots had been donated by the Wingard family, and he said they were made in Edgefield. And, and he was not sure if, you know, wh who made them or anything, but he just said they're, they're made locally. And so um, I then began to uh, look a little further westward. I just was curious about uh, the look of these pots. They had a different look about them. They were not... Um, they were not like anything I had seen. My mother, uh, I had I'd inherited some things from my mother, and I, and I inherited a jug from my grandmother that I I, I got about this time, and, and it had a, an unusual glaze. My grandmother called it a tiger glaze, but it it was very uh, thick and runny, and, and it looked like melted glass. The best way to describe it, with uh, but inside the glass was this was this color or consistency of clay, so it was like glassy clay on top of the jug. And so I went down to... So so for, I'm sorry, so for our, our listeners, we're not talking about like a, a, a pot, uh, a pottery pot like uh, the, the Catawba Indians would make. We're talking something a little more sturdier than that. Yes, that's correct. The Catawbas have been making pottery in, in, in South Carolina for three or 4,000 years. And their pottery is low fired. It's fired in a, basically in a, a, a pit at a temperature that probably doesn't reach more than about 800 degrees. I see. And it has no glaze on it. And they, they burnish it with uh, ashes 
and, and charcoal and they some they put a little black sheen on it but there's no actual glaze the pots are not impervious they they're not they're not waterproof they will in fact leak but they were good for cooking and they had they did serve a purpose and they were useful and they were of course important but what uh, what America needed was a stoneware which is fired at about 2500 degrees and this vitrifies the the clay body so that it's impervious to liquids and with when you add the glaze to it that glaze also helps to uh, reduce leakage and helps preserve foods and so um, you couldn't fire tip, typically lead which was bad for you anyway you couldn't fire it that hot it would melt off it would it would not stay on a pot so they needed something that that could be um, consistently used and would would stay on the pot so the pot would be have a long-term uh, usage and uh, the most uh, common type of stoneware at the time was salt glaze which was um, done in the northeast about the year 1800 they had late 1700s to the early 1800s they were doing salt glazing and uh, but but because the backcountry of South Carolina was uh, remote and, and there was salt in the backcountry but there the need for salt was for the animals and for the people to consume and they really didn't have enough salt to use a ton of salt in a firing on a, in a kiln. They didn't have that kind of accommodation. So it really came down to um, there was a need for another type of glaze. So Admiral Landrum um, began uh, thinking this way about probably about 1808, 1810. He, um, he, I believe he knew a potter in Augusta who was an earthenware potter. And from there... Uh, he, he began to look at how to make China. So he actually petitioned the state government, and this was in 1812. And here again, um, the timing was right because the state wanted to encourage the development of manufacturing. He went to the state with a petition of asking for $5,000 to help him uh, create a China-making factory in Edgefield. He, he received a grant. Now, I'm not sure how much he actually received. He did receive a grant because in 1815, he reported back saying that the China factory was not a success, but he had cre he had created a stoneware factory that was successful, and so he he kind of morphed from China to stoneware at this time. And because China had a type of an alkaline glaze, uh, and by alkaline glaze we're talking about a glaze that involved uh, a silica or a frit that's or sand-like material that will melt and become a glassy type glaze and it has to be the, the alkaline component is some sort of alkaline substance like wood ashes or lime uh, those are the two most common sources and so in, in Edgefield with the China they would have been using lime because wood ashes tend to make glazes very drippy and runny whereas the lime creates more of a just single sheet of, of a glaze so he somehow figured this out. Now, whether he read about it uh, in reading, there was a number of articles that he had published over the years about the Chinese and their use of this glaze, and the Chinese have been using this glaze for 5,000 years, and so uh, maybe he got the idea from there, but it was apparent that in Edgefield District, they had a tremendously um, highly... Uh, sought after and highly appreciated clay source, the uh, alluvial clay belt, which runs along the fall line where 
um, back when the oceans were back there and they were digging out, they dug out these deep down into the, the crust of the earth and we reached areas where it would be hard to mine otherwise, but now this, this material is up closer to the surface. And so there's tremendous beds of kaolin that run, uh, you can follow it, if you follow Highway 1 from North Carolina into South Carolina and on into Georgia, you will follow these this fall line basically and you'll see there are potteries and clay deposits near Sanford, North Carolina that are tremendous. There's some near Bethune, South Carolina. There's some in Columbia and there's some in Edgefield and then on into Georgia. And uh, these clay beds were the key. First, that first, uh, it first happened that Abner wanted to make China using the kaolin, but he soon discovered that the stoneware was something that was perhaps a more viable product to produce because so many people were coming into the Edgefield district in, in the early 1800s with the thought of moving westward as we acquired more land. You know, in the year 1804, the United States bought the Louisiana Purchase from the French. Right. And so a lot of folks looked to go there hoping for new and great opportunities. So Abner Landrum has established by 1815 a stoneware factory in Edgefield, just north of the town, and eventually it became known as a, a as a um, industrial complex. They produced more than just stoneware there. There were a number of other things going on there. There was a tin maker. There were uh, you know th there was a tannery there. A lot of these things. So you could go to Pottersville and get stoneware, but you could also get other needs. And then the stoneware, and then Pottersville became sort of like a mercantile where they they traded in pork bellies and corn and, and flour and anything else you could come and, and barter, trade what you had for something they had, and you didn't need to have cash. And in, in these times when the cash was very hard to come by, having a place that you could barter your wares was pretty nice. So this place called Pottersville uh, developed and the stoneware became part of South Carolina's history. And his was not the only... Uh pottery factory though correct well he was first and then his brother john landrum okay opened a, a factory also down on his plantation some 12 15 miles southwest of pottersville uh, but here again the difference between what admiral landrum was doing and john landrum in my opinion is john had a plantation and so the stoneware business in, on john's plantation was seasonal he had a lot going on. They had seasons. They had crops. They had a lot of other responsibilities. And the stoneware was to just fill out some time. And I think John also was looking at um, how he could better use slaves on his plantation because there were times of year when there wasn't any work to do. And if he had a pottery there, the slaves could work in pottery. I see. The Pottersville shop started out, I don't believe, the same way. It started out as journeyman potters who were brought in who uh, Abner hired because Abner didn't know how to make stoneware. And some of the first potters who arrived there then trained other potters, much like an apprenticeship system for a while. And then a lot of these potters, once the, these new young potters were trained, they would go westward. And almost exclusively all of these potters were white potters, white male potters. They were not slaves. Now by the 1830s, as migration has taken its toll on the craftspeople, 
then you start to see you start to see slavery, slave made pots in Pottersville. But John Landrum, I think, was an earlier was earlier in that regard because it was a plantation economy that he was working out of. So, uh, and of course, it was also up until about 1828, Abner Landrum owned the pottery, and he he was responsible for it. And Abner was a a man who did not, I don't think, cared much about slavery, and he did not believe in secession, secessionism. He didn't want to secede from the Union. And these political beliefs eventually caused him to move to Columbia, South Carolina, and he sold his newspaper, uh, and then he also sold the pottery to his two nephews, Reuben and Harvey Drake, and he moved on to, to Columbia. He reestablished a pottery in Columbia and in a newspaper, but uh, the story we're going to continue to tell is how uh, this pottery that he started in in Pottersville continued, and what what influences came to pass. Most of the Pottersville stoneware that you see is aesthetically beautiful, but it has no decoration, and very little of it has any kind of marks at all or signatures or anything at all. That was Abner's way of thinking. He he was not. He thought the stoneware had to pretty much stand aesthetically on its own. And that was fine in the early years of Pottersville because Pottersville was one of the only games in town, so to speak. There, weren't, there wasn't a lot of competition. Right. And so, of course, as, as, as the West continues to grow and as Edgefield becomes less of a backcountry place and more up, up to date uh, and is affected by... For example, the South Carolina Railroad was established, I think, about 1832. And by 1838, the tracks went all the way to Hamburg, which was near Augusta. And, uh, you know, the thinking about this railroad was that uh, all this all this material coming down the Savannah River, all the, the food, all the crops, and whatever that was going to be shipped out of Savannah, if we built a railroad to Hamburg and then had it offloaded at Hamburg, then would go by train to Charleston, thereby cutting off the trade to Savannah. And it was a really pretty smart economic move, and it was successful. But the stoneware potters in the area kind of, kind of saw that the same possibility because uh, this train did not come all the way to Edgefield. It came up about to the top of the uh, ridge above Horse Creek Valley, and then it kind of went to the left down to Hamburg and. Uh, this was a steep grade to go down, and so it was so steep, in fact, the train had to have a counter, counter lever, a counterweight built on the tracks to, to hold its ascent. didn't have brakes that could hold it, so that slowed the train, and they had to stop there to do this, to reconnect, and all of this created a natural place for a depot, and this depot became eventually Aiken, South Carolina. And so, so, uh, if we go back a, just a few years now, and you kind of understand where we are up until this point, um, in, in, uh, and I mentioned that Admiral Landrum was a he was against secession. Well, the the articles of, of nullification I think were passed by South Carolina in in November of 1832, and these this articles of nullification was that stated basically that we were not going to um, we were not going to abide by the federal government's tariffs on our goods. So what has kind of happened after the War of 1812, and, and we've developed a very big manufacturing sector in the Northeast, 
and they want to trade with the South, with the rich Southern planters, but we want to trade with the English because their goods are cheaper and they're, in a lot of cases they're better than what they're producing in the North. Well, because of the political powers that be had more votes, they f forced tariffs on any of our, uh, our cotton or any of those goods if we were trying to export those to England. These mills in the Northeast wanted our cotton and they wanted to pay less for it. So this was what the Nullification Act was. It was about, you know, we're not going to obey these tariffs. Well, the uh, funny thing is that uh, the president of the United States at the time was Andrew Jackson, a native son of South Carolina. But Jackson was a very staunch Federalist. He believed the federal government had all power and the states did not have these rights. And so he immediately, once this action happened, he began to recruit uh, and, and get his army together, he was going to send an army down to South Carolina to force them to obey the tariff laws. So this created a kind of a um, time of, uh, of, of, of getting soldiers on, and uh, he had officers out looking for people, who, looking for men to join. And in the, uh, December of 1832, uh, a young man by the name of Thomas Chandler came in to the recruiting office and said, I, I want to join the Army. And he signed on. He signed on, and he was a musician, so I guess he probably got a bonus or a, a, a you know, got a, a, a little something up front because of that extra thing that he had, that extra talent that he had. Well, Chandler was an interesting character. He was born on the eastern shore of Virginia in 1810, and his father was a Windsor chair maker who had been trained to make Windsor chairs in, in uh, Baltimore. And so Chandler was raised uh, by a father who was a craftsman who had learned a skill through the apprenticeship system. And when his father took him, took the family back to Baltimore after the War of 1812 because of the big boom in business, Chandler was there then raised in an urban environment where he literally lived next door to Henry Remy, who was a famous potter and also uh, William Morgan, the Myers, the Pars, all of these great, great Baltimore potters. And so the next part of our story will be about Thomas Chandler and how he influenced the pottery in South Carolina. Tell us how people can reach it. Well, the best way to reach me probably would be through email. Uh, my email address would be philip1lwingard, W-I-N-G-A-R-D, at yahoo.com. I also do antique shows throughout the year. I'm at the Madison Antique Show in late February. I'm at the Columbia Bottle Show in mid-February. I oftentimes do the Catawba Valley Pottery Show in Hickory, North Carolina in late March. I also do a show in Camden, South Carolina in May, and I do a show in Cashiers, North Carolina in late July. In the fall, I'll do the um, antique show at Liberty, North Carolina, the last weekend in September. So I hope to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you.